3: Before we begin, a quick warning. This episode does contain strong language and descriptions of violence.
0: so hard are you okay Is his okay? I'm always introducing myself as the artist, the songwriter, the producer ready for Jerry. Which is actually a question and a statement at the same time. The question is, are you ready for Jerry? Is the world ready for Jerry?
3: None of us were ready for Jerry when he blazed into the investigation and dropped a bombshell.
0: See, you don't understand. Not at all. That pain on the man. I'm trying to that pain.
3: That Bontink, or Ready for Jerry, as he prefers to be known, is a Belgian music producer and DJ. But before that, Yuyun had spent time in Syria with John Cantley after he'd been kidnapped
0: see, you don't understand Not at all that pain on man to that pain that made me blackout. John was a cool looking guy handsome dude very charming very sincere very warm guy yeah. and I really wish to see him one day again
4: Yuyun
3: is Belgian, but unlike the Western hostages held by ISIS, he wasn't a journalist or an aid worker. Instead, he'd been a volunteer member of an Islamist terror group who'd been caught trying to leave the violence in Syria and escape back to Belgium. When he was captured, he found himself sharing a prison cell with John Cantley and James Foley.
0: What they told me was that they got torched really bad before I was there, like really bad, like hanging from the wall and upside down and shit. And they still had the scars on their ankles. And like they had to fight each other, like in a dog cage and people would watch from a roof. And if they wouldn't fight, they would be punished way more harder.
3: We'll have more from you, Johan, on what was happening to John and James in captivity. But first, a reminder of how they got there. Last time on Last Man Standing.
2: They start shooting on the ground with the bullets, you know, with the clashing cough. He says, if you open your mouth again, I will kill you right now. And he says, we don't want you. We need these people.
3: John Cantley and James Foley were abducted by a group of armed jihadists.
1: I called Mustafa at his home and the first thing he said to me is, I'm I'm really sorry, Nicole. I tried to help them, but, but they were taken.
3: It was the last time that any of them saw John or James in the flesh. It was now up to their friends, their fixer, Mustafa, and fellow photojournalist, Nicole Tung, to raise the alarm and begin the search.
1: I think very quickly it was established that people were afraid to talk and afraid to disclose any information if they knew any about their whereabouts.
3: I'm Manveen Rana and I'm joining the veteran war correspondent for The Times, Anthony Lloyd, for this special series on his long-running investigation to find out what happened To John Cantley. This is Last Man Standing from The Times and The Sunday Times, Episode Three Missing. Mustafa Karali was not only John Cantley's fixer and translator in Syria, he was also a friend.
2: I really love this man. He's really a great man. Johnny, he teaches me a lot. I was helping him with translating, and he helped me also to be a, a real photographer.
3: John, who could be irascible at times, had been Mustafa's mentor, teaching him photography and introducing him to international news agencies who'd buy his work. He basically laid the foundations for Mustafa's whole career. So when John and Jim Foley were kidnapped in front of him and he couldn't help them, Mustafa was traumatised.
2: When he asked me to help and I, I couldn't help him until now, really every time thinking about this... Because he helped me a lot, but I couldn't. Yeah, um, and he told me that. I don't want to be with these people again, you know. He says, they are so bad. Mustafa, please help me. Yeah, I don't know.
3: Mustafa couldn't stop the kidnapping, but from that moment, he began a frantic search for John and Jim.
4: Well, Mustafa and Nicole are the principal kind of searchers to begin with. Mustafa is devastated by what's happened to the two. I mean, he's the really good friends of his, and also his inspirations too.
3: That's Anthony Lloyd again, war correspondent at The Times, who's spoken to Mustafa at length.
4: So he puts in a lot of effort trying to find out where they are and who's held them. He gets introduced to some very sketchy, shady individuals.
3: Mustafa was still in Binnish, in Syria, near where John and James had been taken. It was an incredibly dangerous situation, but fortunately, he had some local help.
2: My uncle, he was like looking for them in in the same area. Then I called Nicole. I told her, please, I know John and James, they have a tracker. If the tracker is working, please let me know that.
1: I actually remember it really clearly because it was just a weird situation to be in.
3: That's Nicole Tung, who we heard last time. She's a photojournalist and an old friend of James Foley. She was in Turkey waiting for James and John to come over the border when they were kidnapped. So now she started coordinating the search from there.
1: Mustafa was in Binish, asking around and trying to find out you know, where they'd been taken. But in the meantime, I was contacting other journalists who were in Antakya at the time to try and rattle up some ideas, figure out what what we could do and who we could speak to. And from there, it just became long chains of emails of back and forth, you know, contact this sheikh and that fighter or this commander.
3: In the end, it was a signal from the tracker that John and Jim were carrying that brought the first real breakthrough in the search.
2: I went to my uncle. I told him they are in the chicken farm. Uh, he told me, how did you know that? I told him they, they have a tracker. He says, okay, we are going there.
4: So Mustafa goes searching in ever kind of increasing circles around Binish. goes to chicken farm, not far from where they're abducted. And he finds their you know, abandoned clothing that's been rifled and some bags.
2: It was empty some of their stuff, the tracker, broken. And some of the the bags and something like this. So, he asked the people around this farm, did you saw anything here? They said, yes, we watch a van stop for uh, like a couple of minutes and then they leave.
3: This is a real blow. The tracker had been thrown out by the kidnappers and left on a passing chicken farm. The search in Syria has hit a dead end. Meanwhile, as the news of the kidnapping spreads, more and more people join the hunt for John and Jim.
4: The search is on, but it's quite a mal-coordinated search in the beginning. First of all, John does not have a private kidnapping and ransom insurance policy. So his search is loosely coordinated by the Foreign Commonwealth Office, as it was called at the time.
3: Back in Britain, John's friends and family
5: are just realising how difficult this will be. On the one hand, you had Jim Foley, who was running with a private security company because he had kidnap and ransom insurance, and he had his employer, who was extremely diligent and reactive to this. Then you had lone wolf John Cantley, who for all the best intentions of the people that loved him dearly, were just doing what the British Foreign Office told them to do, which was slow, archaic, draconian and lumpy. That's Kevin Godlington
3: again, a good friend of John Cantley's. As a former Special Forces soldier,
5: he knew already how the process around hostages would work. I mean, the frustration for me coming from this community of people was that Here was somebody who was one of my closest civilian friends. And then on the other hand, I come from a world where I know exactly how the Foreign Office, SIS and Special Forces will handle this, right? And um, so here I was sat in the middle, you know? My gut instinct is how do we get him out alive and make sure the family don't go through too much trauma because they're being lied to by the Foreign Office and they were, you know? The Kidnap and Ransom team, they do their best, but it's like one person, I mean, People seem to watch movies and think there's a huge organisation that runs behind the scenes for this. There isn't.
3: Kevin, who'd helped John Cantley prepare for his trip to Syria, was
5: now helping John's girlfriend through the process. We colluded to work out what the best court of action is and like any good, dutiful partner and wife, she followed the rules of the Foreign Office. She played fair, you know, she did exactly as she was told. The Foreign Office are telling her, you know, we have a plan, we know what we're doing, we're going to find a way through this. And, of course, in the back of my mind the whole time, I know there will be no path. They will not negotiate. There will be no escape strategy for John.
3: The Foreign Office say they do everything they can to help the families of hostages. But in Turkey, Nicole Tung was finding yet more signs that the official search would prove to be inadequate.
4: Nicole is trying to field a lot of the kind of questions from various people who, who come in saying they're representing one agency, as I understand it, or another company trying to, to look for them, many of whom seem completely unsuited and clueless in terms of where to start.
1: I think the families reached out to the FBI and the Foreign Office. It was about two weeks after their kidnapping that I met with actual FBI staff in Antakya and
4: Metropolitan Police in Scotland Yard. Did the officials that you met with have a background understanding of the Syrian war?
1: Um, No, I would say that the people that I met with were way in over their heads, had no idea what was going on in Syria, how serious it was, and maybe had read a few kind of internal reports or Wikipedia pages about what was going on. And that was the extent of their knowledge.
4: So a number of different agencies start to search and a number of different individuals start to search. But what is safe to say is nobody, apart from a bit of abandoned clothing, ever finds anything, or knows what has happened to John or James, in concrete terms, for at least one more year.
3: The trail goes cold. Nobody even knows if John and James are still alive. Until a year later, when fresh intelligence is brought to light. To find out, How that happens, and where John and Jim have been in the meantime, Antony's investigation leads him to a man named Arthur.
4: Arthur is the alias of a Danish former special forces hostage negotiator who was involved intensively in Syria trying to secure the release of Western hostages held there. So Arthur knows an awful lot about not just hostage policy, what went wrong, what went right, what it's like to deal with Islamic State.
6: I've been in the security industry for 20-odd years, responding to crisis and security-related incidents.
3: Arthur uses an alias because of the risks of his job and the sort of people he has to deal with while trying to find hostages.
6: There was always something really weird about the fact that John and James could disappear from the face of the planet from November until October, where we got the first whiff of who had them.
3: Arthur had been hired to look for James Foley, and in October 2013, he suddenly had an intriguing lead.
6: No one had really no idea about where people were. and. It was not until we had this weird call out from Belgium, where someone said to to James' family, hey, I, I, I might have an idea about where James is. I was asked to go and check this out. I mean, at that time I had maybe interviewed 500 different people and nothing had come up. And all of a sudden this weird case come up and it was a wild shot.
3: It was a bit wild. The new source was Jajun Bontink, the Belgian rapper and DJ known as Ready for Jerry, who you heard at the start. And at the time, Jajun must have seemed like an unusual source. He was back in Belgium and behind bars.
6: I go down there to Belgium and I meet Jajun in prison because he was in prison. So first of all, Jajun said... This is this is what I know.
3: We'll find out what Yuyun knew in just a
0: moment.
3: Coming up, get ready for Jerry. We'll be back in just a moment. But if you're interested in this podcast, you might also want to try Stories of Our Times the daily news podcast that brings together the best journalism from the Times and the Sunday Times. One story told in depth every day. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts. in four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In the autumn of 2013, a year after John and Jim were kidnapped, there's finally a miraculous breakthrough. Jaw-dropping information is revealed, pinpointing their location and who's holding them. And it comes from an unlikely source. and Bontink, already for Jerry as we now know him, was not only a rapper and DJ, but when the Danish investigator Arthur found him, he was also a prisoner in a Belgian jail. So what was he doing there?
4: At the start of the Syrian war, Yuan Bontink was a teenage Belgian. He was radicalised by the group Sharia for Belgium, who wanted to transform Belgium into a caliphate state. Wow. He goes off to Syria, aged 18 years old. However, no sooner as Ewan arrived and sees the kind of day-to-day random cruelty and sort of killing and violence, he becomes disaffected. He wants to go home. Very quickly, he was imprisoned by Islamic State, ended up in jail He manages to make it out in October 2013.
3: Islamic State didn't approve of defectors, but after three months of jail and at times torture, they thought the Belgian had probably learnt his
4: lesson. Yuyuan, by October 2013, is released by Islamic State. They want him to go back into service under arms for them, but in fact, he escapes to Turkey. When he arrives in Antwerp, He's promptly arrested by the authorities in Belgium, of course, on terror charges. They say, you've gone off to Syria, you've participated in jihad, you've served in Islamic state, which he denies. He says he was trying to leave.
3: So, having just escaped to prison in Syria, Yoyuan now finds himself behind bars in Belgium, where the authorities have a lot of questions for him.
0: I was in prison in Belgium. They interrogated me to see... What was going on? Is this a guy that we got to be afraid of? Or is this a real victim? So they realized I was a real victim. They realized I was saying the truth. And then they realized I was in prison with two people that was
4: missing as well. While he's being held, he says, listen, I've been sharing a cell in an Islamic State prison in Aleppo with two Western hostages, with John Cantley and James Foley. That's a hugely significant moment. He's the first person to come out of Syria since John and James were abducted in November 2012 and say, hey, they're still alive. I've seen them and I know where they are. I mean, that's a really dramatic bit of evidence,
3: finally, proof that they're still alive. In terms of cr- the credibility of, of Yoon in prison, you know, as a former
4: member of the jihad, I mean, is, is he believed immediately? Yeah, he is believed immediately because he shared six weeks with John and James. So they've given him all sorts of details. They've given him their email addresses. John gave him details about, I think, the car that his girlfriend drove. James has given him, I, th- I believe, a scarf, too, to take out for a DNA match. I mean, these guys, wow. six weeks in a small cell together, they know everything about each other. He is believed And the key evidence he comes out with is both men are still alive, were alive at the point that he left them in a cell in September 2013. And also where that location is and in whose control they are. It's the worst news imaginable. They are in the hands of Islamic State.
3: I mean, that really is bleak news. How does your come to know about it? I mean... You mentioned that he'd been imprisoned by ISIS before he was in jail in Belgium. Just talk us through, do we know how exactly he came to meet
4: John and James? So Ewan von Tink, who's already been arrested by the extremist organisation he's joined, finds by the time he ends up in prison, he's tortured, he's put in stress positions, he's beaten, he's whipped, he has mock executions. And finally, he's transferred to a prison in the former children's hospital, In Aleppo, I was taken to this room,
0: which was the room where people would be interrogated. And I've been brought to that room for several times, being asked, in my personal case, why do you want to go home? And one of the days I was brought in there because it's really frightening. You never know, are you the one next being killed or not? Are you the one next being tortured or not? Because you hear it a lot. You would hear people scream, you would hear people shout, you would hear people beg and stuff. And I was always in fear of, am I next? So I was brought to the room, and then they asked me, are you willing to to convince two new members of our belief? I said, okay, that's not a problem, because I'm a convert myself back then, you know?
4: While he's in prison, he... Is told that he's going to be sharing a cell with two new converts to Islam and he should help, you know, guide them on their path as converts in prison. I said, okay, no problem.
0: I mean, I was thinking anything that would be better than, you know, the previous prison I was in. So I said, okay, that's fine. Okay, grab your stuff, grab your
4: clothes. So you put in a cell, the door opens, it's a dark room. In the corner of the room, he can see two thin, bearded men in his traditional Islamic clothes, and shawar. Those two men are John Cantley and James Foley. It was just an
0: abandoned room with a small window. That was it.
4: Grey, dark.
0: And there they were when I came in, wearing Islamic clothes. I didn't know who, who they were. To me, they were just white people. The first white people I've seen... In months.
3: So this is really significant. Not only are John Cantley and James Foley alive, but we now know that at some point in that year since they've been held captive, they've also converted to Islam. And Yuan has now been appointed as their spiritual guide. Did he know how that conversion had happened? Did he know what had happened to them in the year since they were kidnapped?
4: Yeah, he did. So they ended up being held by a foreign jihadi group who were absolutely connected to the first jihadi group that John had been held by just a few months earlier. Indeed, the jihadi group that got in the second time round are commanded by the brother of the jihadi group who got in the first time round.
3: So this is important Remember, this is the second time that John Cantley had been kidnapped that year. The earlier kidnapping had made him some enemies, after he published details about the foreign jihadis who'd been involved. It had led to arrests back in Britain, and the commander of the group who'd held him had later been killed. And now, it seems John and James had been held by that
4: commander's brother, who must have wanted revenge. John and James are held in Idlib for most of the time. They're later transferred to Aleppo. They had at least two escape attempts, once trying to pick the lock of their handcuffs with an improvised key they'd made, which which never really got anywhere. The second time when Jim managed to lure himself out of a window on a blanket and had a chance to get away, but was waiting for John, who was captured behind him, and Jim didn't then make his break for freedom because John had been... Taken After both those times, they were, they were tortured very badly by Islamic State members over a long period of time, including some of the so-called Beatles.
0: What they told me was that they got tortured really bad before I was there. Like, really bad. Like, hanging from the wall and upside down and shit, and they still had the scars on their ankles.
4: They had been waterboarded, very badly beaten, that they have been hung up and beaten. And I believe that they have been electrocuted as well.
0: And like they had to fight each other like in a dog cage and people would watch from a roof. And if, if they wouldn't fight, they would be punished way more harder than in the first place. And it's really terrifying because they didn't do nothing wrong. Don't punish a human being in that type of way. You're just a psychopath.
3: Wow. Wow. Um- During this period, did they feel like their lives were in danger? Did they feel like they might be killed at any moment?
4: I think by the time they got to Aleppo, there might have been a small kind of respite, but I can't describe strongly enough the conditions that they'd been in between getting kidnapped and arriving in Aleppo. For several months, they had been like appallingly tortured. And if you are tortured by a really merciless, sadistic group of men, then for sure you're going to fear that your life will be in danger every day. John made a comment to Yuyuan, words to the effect that, I'm not ever sure that I will be allowed home. Now, it's a very sad comment to make. On one level, he kind of didn't believe he was ever going to get out of there.
3: That's desperately sad. In a way, so much of this investigation is about trying to understand John's mindset about what he was thinking. You know, particularly later in 2014 when all the other Western hostages are being beheaded and yet somehow he always survives. There is that lingering question that we keep coming back to in this series of just whether he turned, whether at some point John becomes sympathetic to Isis. One thing we do know now is that at this point in 2013, John and James have officially converted to Islam. And that's obviously quite an important development. I mean, Yuan was supposed to be their their guide to the religion. He's supposed to be their spiritual counsellor in a way. When you spoke to him, did he think they were serious about the conversion? Did he think John was genuinely interested in the religion?
4: and spoke a lot about this week. They had apparently converted to Islam. Now, to some extent, that was true. They were practicing praying and they were asking and a lot about religion, a lot about the Islamic faith. However, You've got to put yourself in their shoes with this. When Yu Yuan spoke to me, I said, do you believe that that conversion was for real? And he said, upon reflection, I do not believe it was for real. To me, it was more like a
0: not really sincere option that they had. It was the best option for them back then. But don't ask them to do the same thing as a free man, because they won't. They might be interested, they might be respectful, but they won't do the same thing and live that certain lifestyle. That's what I've seen and realized. That was the only option. Anything to
4: just get out or just get better, right? I believe if they'd had any other choice, they wouldn't have converted. What it seems is that James Foley came from a you know, very strong Catholic family and was practicing. you know J- James had spiritual faith. Converting allowed him the space to pray and allowed him to continue with spiritual communication in a way that wouldn't get him abused or beaten by the gods. That's point number one. I think that's how it was for James. John, it allowed some sort of, as Ewan described it, reflection and just time to go into himself and think and some sort of privacy. You've also got to remember a couple of things. Converting to Islam would not save your life as a hostage. However, sometimes, depending on who the guards were looking after you, if you're a Muslim convert as a hostage, you got cut a tiny little bit more slack. You might get A little bit more food or a little less beating. Sometimes it depended on which guard group was looking after you. Now, if you're a hostage in long term captivity and you've been tortured over a protracted amount of time and you work out that, you know, by converting to Islam, every now and then you get cut a tiny little bit more slack, it's part of your survival process. It's like, I'm going to keep myself in slightly better condition here. I'm going to play to stay alive. I'm going to do what it takes. This could help me stay alive and get out of this situation. So there's all those component elements to that conversion. But ultimately, Yuyuan told me that he didn't think it was a real conversion.
3: And when Eun is thrown into this cell with them to go and guide them, is he supposed to be there monitoring them too? I mean, is he supposed to be going back and reporting on whether they've genuinely converted?
4: He was also under a lot of pressure at the time. I think his engagement with the pair of them was different to really trying to just figure out, well, are they genuine converts or not? I mean, you said they wept a lot together. They discussed their likely fates. It seemed to be much more of a shared captives experience rather than, okay, I'm going to check if these two guys are really legit Muslims now or not.
0: While spending time with each other, who are you? What's your name? Where are you from? What have you done in the past? If you're 24-7 with each other for weeks, then you started to get to know each other and you started to get a bond with each other and you started to become friends. You start to play games. And then you start to have conversations like, if I get out, I'm going to contact your family. That was actually their demand instead of me because they realised I was getting out quicker than they was.
4: yo
3: did get out soon. ISIS released him from prison in Aleppo. And although he was jailed in Belgium for a while, he's now a free man, working as a rapper and a DJ. I think a lot of people will want to know, how did that happen?
4: yo had many, uh, you know, he's quite a young guy. He's had many incarnations. He wasn't born Muslim. He converted, I think, in 2011, came quickly under the thrall of Sharia for Belgium, managed to escape, gets arrested himself in Belgium, put on terror charges. However, he becomes one of the key prosecution witnesses in a huge terror trial late in 2014 in which it's his testimony that helped send some of the founders of Sharia for Belgium to jail. And for his cooperation, he got a suspended sentence. I think it was 40 months. So he didn't end up getting sentenced to prison. And he's now reincarnated himself. He's a DJ in Belgium under the handle, ready for Jerry, with a question mark, as he told me.
3: Yeruan still takes every opportunity to talk about the two men he once shared
4: a cell with.
0: Jim and John They became really good friends
4: He spoke of them with affection of something shared in adversity
0: It's just such a warm feeling the fact that we all were there for each other listening to each other respecting each other that's something that I'll never forget and just the fact that they were so good people great men they could have achieved great things which they already did in their previous life, before they got in prison. That's something that I'll never forget, because they're still heroes to me.
3: Although Yuyuan provided information about John and James and where they'd been held in October 2013, there were no immediate attempts to rescue them. There are so many moments in this story when, like a tossed coin, fate hangs suspended in the air, deciding which side to come down on. So many moments when things could have gone differently. For Anthony, he often thinks of those months when John and James were held in that ISIS prison in Aleppo.
4: Oddly, a prison I used to drive by loads of times while John and James were in it, not knowing that they were there. It was kind of like the converted hospital. And, um, you know, you wouldn't see that many Islamic State around it, a few guards at the gate. And those were the days, kind of sketchy 2013 days, you just look straight ahead and drive down low in a car, you're kind of bearded and wearing their clothes and... You know, it's so easy to go wrong, particularly now looking back at it all.
3: So Yu is back in Belgium. John and Jim are still being held by ISIS somewhere in Syria. In the meantime, you're still going back. You're still covering the conflict. You're still going in and out of the country What's happening to you?
4: Now, during this time in 2013, I've been working quite a lot still in Aleppo, at the peak of the barrel bombing campaign there by this uh, Assad regime against rebel-held areas there, most of the casualties being civilian. i just completed in May 2014 some work in Aleppo, and I was travelling north, back home, exactly, you know, the same sort of direction as John and James had, two years earlier and I should have headed straight for the border but you know then I made my mistake too I insisted to my team that it was a good idea to overnight in this town and pick up slightly dusty communications with a rebel commander with whom we'd lost contact for a kind of year before leaving the next day we all made mistakes that was my mistake the next day all four of people in my team me too were ourselves kidnapped
3: That's coming up next time in Episode 4. Last Man Standing is a Stories of Our Times production for The Times and The Sunday Times. This series is based on an investigation and interviews conducted by Anthony Lloyd, war correspondent at The Times. It's co-presented and executive produced by me, Manveen Rana. The lead producer is Poppy Damon, the producer is Matthew Wareham. Story editing is by Joe Sykes at Samersdat Audio. Sound design and original music is by Tom Birchall. And the executive producer of Stories of Our Times is Kate Ford.